are in week number two of our vision series where we're looking at what we mean as a church uh, when we say we exist to see lives transformed by Jesus. And we're, we're doing that by kind of looking at the three different aspects of how we try to accomplish that. So uh, we believe as a church that transformation happens as we grow in our love for God, as we grow together in community, and as we serve the community outside the church and inside the church, as we serve those around us. So last week, Anthony kicked us off by talking about how our Sunday morning services and our renewed classes that we're starting up are really uh, built with the intention in mind of really growing our understanding of who God is and uh, what he's done and really growing to understand his love for us so that we grow in our love for him. Uh, And today, I get to look at the second aspect of how we try to accomplish this purpose, which is to grow, when when we say our growing together is our second side of it, is growing together in Jesus-centered relationships. So most of you have probably heard, most of us have probably heard why we need community. You know, there's all kinds of studies out there. You've probably heard sermons about it. Maybe you've read a book about it. Um, You know, and even if you haven't read those studies, you've probably experienced uh, the need for community in your own life. If you felt lonely or, you know, studies call it the epidemic of loneliness and all its side effects that it talks about, maybe you've experienced that personally. We all know we need community. And actually, the, the issue has gotten so bad that I read an article recently about a loneliness pill that they are creating to try to solve the problem, which I found fascinating. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, I don't know how it would solve the problem. <laughs> I don't know if it's a person you talk to or something, I'm not sure. But, All that to say, I think we understand, at least we've been told, we need community, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time today trying to convince you of that. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time talking about the type of community that we need. In other words, I'm going to be painting really a target, my goal is to paint a target for us, for what we mean when we say we want to grow together as a church, you know, what are we aiming at? So we'll do that kind of by looking at three three main ideas. The first thing we'll do is talk about what those relationships should look like. So we'll call that, you know, profile of a true friend. We'll look at that first. Then we'll look at the transforming power of friendship. And then lastly, because it's so easy to get jaded about community and jaded towards people and just kind of feel cut off from deep relationships, the last thing we'll talk about is the hope we have for that type of community to actually exist here on earth. So those will be the three moves. And what we're going to do for today is spend a lot of time in the Proverbs, which little uh, trick for you. If you ever have to preach out of Proverbs, print them out, pin them inside your Bible with paper clips, and then you don't have to flip around the whole time. So... Little trick for you there. Um, but I'm going to read our first proverb and then we'll, uh, we'll get started here. So this is Proverbs 18 24. <clears throat> it says, A man with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. So just to kind of start the conversation about friendship here, we're looking at a proverb that shows that there's a difference between friends, you know, in quotes, and real true friends. And actually, in the original Hebrew, both words that were translated friend in that verse we just read are actually, it's two different words. Uh, the first word is kind of a generic word for friend. It can mean, it can mean friend, but it, based on the context, it can also just mean a companion or acquaintance or just another person. But the second word, where it says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, that word conveys a lot more intimacy and actually is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew verb that means to love. So in 1 Samuel, uh, whenever you hear, it says, Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. That's the same word, actually. Same word used there as, as in this verse. And um, if you know anything about Jonathan and David and their story through the Old Testament, it really is probably the best example of friendship that we have. So needless to say, there's a difference. Some, some versions of the Bible even will translate that verse. A man, has many, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So there's a difference here. What, but the, really, the first question we're going to answer is, what is the difference between you know, an acquaintance or a companion 
and a, and a true friend. So that'll be our first main idea today, is the profile of a true friend. And as we walk through this, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is kind of walk through three primary attributes you see of a true friend through the book of Proverbs. And I'll, I'll read several Proverbs as we hit each one. But as we go through this, I think it can be helpful for a couple of reasons. First, um, like I said earlier, it helps paint the target for us. When we say we want to grow together, it actually shows us what we're aiming at. But secondly, and maybe more challenging, <clears throat> this can also be a real good diagnostic tool for me and you. So as we go through these, I would just ask you to ask yourself, have I ever had a friend like this? And have I ever been a friend like this? So just would encourage you to do that as we go through this first idea. And I will say, with each of these attributes, we could spend way more time than we're going to today. This is kind of a flyover. But we'll hit each one as best we can. So in the book of Proverbs, really the first um, attribute of a true friend is commitment. We already saw that in one of the verses we read today. I'll read three uh, Proverbs, including the one we already read, to kind of kick that off. <clears throat> so Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for a difficult time. A man with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. Don't abandon your friend or your father's friend, and don't go to your brother's house in your time of calamity. Better a neighbor, neighbor nearby than a brother far away. So what we see here right, out of the, right off the, the bat with these verses is it's talking about this, the constancy and the commitment of a true friend. And, and in each of those verses, I don't know if you noticed this, it does that by comparing a true friend to a brother. Which, uh, you may know this about me, you may not, but I'm actually from a pretty big family. I'm one of six children. Uh, my parents have contributed to overpopulation, I will admit. Um, but I'm one of uh, six. I'm number four in the line. I have two older sisters, and then there's four boys. So I grew up with three brothers um, and spent a lot of time with them. I was really close with my brothers, still am today. I was homeschooled for part of my life, so we spent a lot of time doing school together. Uh, if I ever do anything awkward around you, that is why. I'll use that as my excuse for every reason. Um, with my older brother, we went to the same school at, once we got out of homeschool and we we're going to school. Same school, had classes together, played sports together, shared a room. So needless to say, a lot of closeness in my family with my brothers, and still to this day, even though we've kind of been in different states, there still is a closeness in there, even as adults. So when I read verses like that, I can kind of think, huh, really? Like a friend that's better than that? Like than the commitment of a brother? And I think the original hearers would have thought the same thing, because, you know, ancient cultures were built on family. Family was central to everything. But what I think is important to pull from that is simply that these verses are not meant to lower our understanding or our view of biological siblings. What it's actually meant to do is raise up our view of friendship. Because we can so often just kind of disregard it or view it as very not important or lower than. But here we see it being held up alongside a brother and even saying it's better than. <clears throat> so how is it better than? And in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis um, spends a lot of time talking about friendship. It's a really cool book, would recommend it. He talks about the four Greek words used for love in the New Testament and kind of breaks them down and talks about their differences. So one whole section is this idea of friendship. And in that book, he talks about really one of the most beautifully unique things about friendship, especially compared to family, is the idea that the commitment of friends to each other is completely voluntary. With family, you choose your family. You, choose, or you, you don't choose your family. I don't know if you choose your family or not, but you don't choose your family. You choose your friends. So with family, you might be there for each other. You might be committed. Sometimes, though, you don't really like each other at all. Like there's times where maybe it's a funeral or something. You come, you'll still come together because there's this obligation. But with friends, there's no obligation. You've chosen someone else, and they've chosen you, not because of obligation or because of how they benefit you, but because of who you are, because of who they are. And what this commitment looks like 
we read in, in Proverbs 17, 17, it said a friend loves at all times. All times, all kinds of times. And when you start to think about that, it starts to sound like wedding vows, you know, sickness and health, richer or poorer, better or worse. Or maybe when your friend annoys you, or when your friend succeeds and excels past you in the career field where you feel awkward talking about your job now, or when your friend wrongs you or costs you. Because this kind of commitment really is costly. If you, if you take the time to think about what that would mean, it costs time, it costs energy, it costs resources. It really, this is a friend who is willing to lay everything down for you. It costs everything. And I realize that as we talk about this, you might think, man, it'd be great to have a friend like that, like we could want that. But at the same time, I realize I might have lost half of you already because commitment is something that in our culture we are allergic to. If, I mean, there's, there's a reason that cell phone companies sell you cell phones and contracts with, or with no contracts as one of the biggest selling points. You know, no contract. <laughs> Leave whenever you want. You know, that's like, well, actually, bail on your current company and come join us. You know, commitment is like, they don't do that because they made that up. They picked up on where we were at with commitment. And they decided to sell in regards to that. So I realized this is hard. <clears throat> and this is only the first attribute. So, so much more we could say about that. But the first, again, the first attribute of a true friend you see all through Proverbs is commitment. The second one is candor. They'll all start with the letter C, in case you're wondering. So the second one is candor. I'm going to read about five Proverbs here that, that touch on that. Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Oil and incense bring joy to the heart, and the sweetness of a friend is better than self-counsel. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. One who rebukes a person will later find more favor than one who flatters with his tongue. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. <clears throat> so all through the Bible, we're presented with this reality that we are woefully inept at seeing ourselves clearly. We just can't do it. We are really bad at it. And actually, modern psychology is aware of this as well. There's a, psychologist, a psychology professor at Princeton University named Emily Pronin, and she specializes in human self-perception and decision-making, which sounds like such a fascinating field to me. And uh, she talks about this idea, this kind of mistaken belief that we think we have this privileged information about ourselves. She calls it the introspection illusion. Um, and here's a kind of an excerpt from an article that's talking about her work and her research. <clears throat> it says, the way we view ourselves is distorted, but we do not realize it. The reason for this distorted view is quite simple, according to Pronin. Because we do not want to be stingy, arrogant, or self-righteous, we assume that we are not any of those things. As evidence, she points to our divergent views on ourselves and others. We have no trouble recognizing how prejudiced or unfair our office colleague acts towards another person, but we do not consider that we could behave in much the same way. Because we intend to be morally good, it never occurs to us that we too might be prejudiced. And uh, the article went on to explain several things that you know, research has shown that we don't know about ourselves. Just wanted to share a couple with you. I thought they were really interesting. Uh, your motives are often a complete mystery to you. Other people often see you clearer than you see yourself. We too often think we are better at something than we are, and you deceive yourself without realizing it, which is very, a very redundant statement. <laughs> you deceive yourself without realizing it. Uh, <clears throat> but the point is we don't see ourselves clearly. We somehow manage to have both way too high of a view of ourselves and way too low of a view of ourselves at the same time. There was another study I found really interesting, kind of humorous, but also sad, that um, over 50% of Americans not only think that they are a good person, but think that they are, in fact, the best person that they know. 
statistically impossible for that to be true. Um, also, think about this room. If you put a line down the middle, half of us, we're most of, mostly American, but half of us would think we're better than not just everyone else in the room, but everybody that we've ever met, uh, which is just flabbergasting. But at the same time, things like, the imposter, like imposter syndrome and low self-esteem and depression, those are also through the roof. So we somehow manage to have such an inaccurate view of ourselves that we have way too high of a view and way too low of a view of ourselves at the same time. And the solution to this, according to Proverbs, is you need a friend. <laughs> you need a friend who will speak the truth to you no matter what. And sometimes what this will look like will be the wounds of a friend that are meant to challenge your own self-centeredness. And sometimes this will be the sweetness of a friend that is meant to challenge your own self-deprecation. We, saw, we were told that a friend, the sweetness of a friend is better than self-counsel. That's because we can tear ourselves down better than most people can. So a true friend is committed. They're present in your life, and they stick with you. And a true friend is candid. They're going to share the truth with you and call out toxic behavior and, and, and wound you when they need to wound you, but they'll also um, encourage you when they need to encourage you. But with that wounding that comes with candor and with that commitment, there needs to be a third piece, and that's the last thing we're going to talk about here. There has to be this connection, a concern, and a care for the other people. Otherwise, we'll end up not being iron sharpening iron. Uh, we'll be hammer smashing nails when we try to just speak the truth to each other. So this is where it gets a little more nuanced, which, again, relationships are so nuanced. I had so many things I could not include for our time today, but, but the third C is concern. That's the attribute of a true friend is that they show genuine concern. I'm going to read a couple Proverbs. And as I, as I read these, just listen to, and we'll talk about it a little bit, but listen to how this really lets us kind of get into the nuance of relationships. <clears throat> Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Otherwise, he'll get sick of you and hate you. <laughs> Which, uh, if you're like me and you're an introvert, sigh of relief. This is where it comes in, you know. A friend loves at all times. Not 100% of the time are they in your house. But they love you at all times. <clears throat> Singing songs to a troubled heart is like taking off clothing on a cold day or like pouring vinegar on soda. Like a madman who throws flaming darts and deadly arrows, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. If one blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be counted as a curse to him. So, so what all of these verses kind of carry with them, if you want to kind of find a common theme, is when you think about it, you know, how would you know if you'd overstayed your welcome at someone's house? How would you know if their heart was troubled so you shouldn't be singing them songs? How would you know when's too early to greet them in the morning? Because there aren't like set rules for those things. You know, overstaying your welcome in someone's house, it's not like an hour and a half and you're out of there. That could offend somebody. They might want you to stay four hours. But an hour and a half might be way too long for other people. So what this proves is that there's a concern where you are aware of and give weight to the feelings of the other person. And you know them personally. And you actually treat them with, and cater to who they are, not just with this broad brush stroke of you know, this is how I treat everybody, you cater your treatment to who they are. And that could obviously include a ton of areas of life, <clears throat> but just for an easy example, think of candor. So when you're speaking the truth to somebody, if all you had was candor, but you don't have concern, um, you'll just, again, you'll be like a hammer smashing nails. But whenever you have this concern for the other person, then you realize it's not just what you say that matters, but it's how and when and why you say it. And what that allows for, again, with that, along those same lines of candor, is it allows for your wounds, when you have to wound your friend, for them to be the most effective wounds they could be. Because they won't be offended at your, your tastelessness or the way in which you delivered it or the terrible timing. They'll have to let the wound rest where it should rest, on the toxic or destructive behavior that you are calling out of your friend because you love them. So, to briefly summarize, a true friend is 
just completely committed, deeply committed. They are relentlessly candid with you, and they are personally concerned for you. And what all that kind of can show us is that a true friend is rare. By their very nature, you cannot have a lot of people like this in your life. We don't have the time, we don't have the bandwidth to be able to be that committed to that many different people. And actually, the, uh, the literature you read on this topic about human relationships is very interesting. Um, they say you can have about 150 people who would be fit in the realm of like acquaintances in your life. You, know, you recognize them, you might know one or two facts about them. They fit 150 people in that category. I'm sure it's give or take a few, but that's kind of the general number. Within that 150, you can have about 12 to 15 people who are like your village, like they're your people. They know what's going on in your life, they're there for you, they're able to challenge you, they see what's going on in your life and they can like celebrate with you when things are good and, and you know, mourn with you when things are bad. It's about 12 to 15 there. And then within that 12 to 15, there's about two to five who would qualify as what you'd call best friends. You know, the truest of friends who are there with you, and have known you for a long time, have the context, and really the people you can just bear your soul to without any fear of it being used against you. And Jesus, it's very interesting, that's not Christian literature that says that, but Jesus' life actually models those numbers. So Jesus had his followers, and then he had 12 people out of those followers who were his disciples, and then within the 12, you had three, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest to him. And this is actually the reason why we emphasize small groups in our church. It's not because we think you have tons of free time and just want to add a meeting to your schedule. You know, it's not because we think it's always comfortable to walk in someone's living room. The reason we have small groups is to create an environment where you can find your 12 to 15 people who are your village, where you belong and where they know you and where you can ask your hard questions and you can be encouraged, you can be challenged. <clears throat> and the hope is that from that 12 to 15, you'll find two to five friends who are just there with you through everything. And it doesn't matter if you're in the same small group or not, you're going to be friends. That's going to continue whether or not you're in the same group. So, so that's the goal there. So really so far what we've looked at <clears throat> is what the target is when we're looking at growing together as a church, and then, you know, where you can find that within our local church context. But there's still the question of how, meaning how does this actually transform me? Because that's what we're saying. We exist to see lives transformed by Jesus. How does this, these kinds of relationships actually transform me? <clears throat> so that's going to be our second main idea today. It's the transforming power of friendship. I want to read us another proverb here. <clears throat> the one who walks with the wise will become wise but a companion of fools will suffer harm. So this verse is really just simply to show us the reality that your friends will change you. They'll either make you more wise or they'll make you more foolish, leading to ruin. And in case, you know, a single Bible verse isn't enough to convince you of that, science has a name for this too. It's actually called the social proximity effect. <clears throat> and what it is is just restating what that proverb said. You're going to become like your friends. So basically, you'll adopt their habits, their spending patterns, even their, even their values. So as much as we like to think, you know, like, we're I'm an individual, I'm not impacted by those around me, you know, that's just not really true. The reality is we are deeply relational, building, uh, deeply relational people, and the relationships that we build deeply impact us and deeply change us. But that just kind of tells us you know, that relationships transform. This doesn't really answer the question, well, what if I want to tra be transformed into something good? You know, how do I do that? And uh, that's what we'll look at next. <clears throat> when I revisit a, a verse I read earlier, and it's a very popular proverb, it's Proverbs 27, 17. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So a lot of times that verse, and rightfully so, is kind of looked at through the lens of candor. You know, when, when you have good friends, there'll be sparks, there'll be friction, but through the end, you know, because of that, you'll be both be better for it. And that's true. But I wanted to look at it from a slightly different angle um, and just kind of point out that when you're sharpening iron, 
I don't know if any, any blacksmiths in the house, but uh, when you sharpen iron, you do it with a reason in mind, a purpose in mind, okay? Like it might be the, the work that you're sharpening this tool for, or it might be the war that you're sharpening this weapon for, but the point is that you always sharpen iron for something, which begs the question, what is a person for? And I realize about halfway through the sermon, I'm posing a question that people have been asking for forever, <laughs> and I don't plan to be able to cover the entire thing in this sermon. But how you answer that question will determine so much about your life, including how you approach friendships and what your friendships or who your friendships turn you into. So a very common understanding of the world in our day and age is that we are a biological accident that has evolved into what we are now, and that when we die, that's it. There's nothing else. So really, we come from nothing with no purpose. It was an accident. We're going nowhere to nowhere, you know, with no purpose. So really that means right now, that understanding would lead you to believe, okay, there's really no purpose for now. A person really isn't for anything. And what that becomes is then we just start to live life just to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The purpose of life becomes pleasure or for me to be as happy as possible through my life. And even if you don't, even if you claim to be a Christian, you don't adhere to that worldview that, that we just evolved from, you know, it was an accident. Even if you don't adhere to that, you can still start living with this same mindset that life exists for me to be as happy as possible while I'm here and eat, for me to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. And when we think that way, when we approach life that way, what that does to our friendships is it turns them into just means by which we use people for our pleasure or our self-actualization. And then they'll do the same to you. And what happens when we do that <clears throat> is that um, this has actually been called the commodification of friendship. They actually have a name for it. It's where we start to treat people more like businesses than like people. And when we do that, what happens, what that transforms us into, what that turns us into, is people who are extremely skilled at using other people and extremely exhausted from being used by other people. This leads us to being you know, cold and kind of you know, numb to, because of the amount of people we've dropped throughout the ages. And then it also will make us very closed off and defensive and not really open to deep relationship because so many other people have dropped us. So either way, we end up isolated. Because if you think about it, if we all exist to pursue our own interests, we are all by default alone. And we'll only really be friends as long as our interests happen to line up and only for the time that they do. So that kind of leads us, well, what if we had a better answer to the question, what is a person for? And uh, I don't know of a better answer than from what you find in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which if you don't know what that is, it's totally fine. It is a summary of Christian doctrine that was put together in the 17th century, so 1600s, by a group of men much smarter than myself who spent a ton of time searching God's word for the answers to really the biggest questions in life. And even if you're not familiar with the name, the Westminster Catechism, <clears throat> you might be familiar with the first question of it. So it's, in a, it's presented in a question and answer format and the first question they ask in that is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is a person for? And here's the answer that they settled on after a long time of studying God's word. Again, they didn't make this up. They pulled this from God's word. Here's the answer. <clears throat> Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I'll repeat that again. So man's chief end, what a, purpose, what a person is for, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. <clears throat> and there's obviously so much in that statement. We could spend our whole lives trying to unpack what that means and how that looks and how that applies to our lives. But what I want to point out for our time today is that is a very 
God-centered reason for people existing. There's a very God-centered purpose for our lives. And the reason that's so important for you and I here is we live in a culture that will tell you that the world, that you are the center of the universe and that the reason you exist is to identify your deepest desires, to search those out, and then to accomplish those by any means necessary. And that means that things like community and tradition and religion and family, they really aren't allowed to stand in the way of that. <clears throat> and they're only useful, you know, community, tradition, family, religion, those things are only useful in as much as they help you accomplish your own personal goals. So really what we're taught is life is all about you know, self-assertion. It's you-centric. But from what we just talked about earlier, about the, a true friend, the friendships that we are designed for, and I think we, we deeply long for, if you paid attention, those are all, all those attributes are about self-denial, not self-assertion. It's about committing to other people when it would be easier to just you know, not commit and to stay independent and to do your own thing. It's about being candid, even when, even when it's uncomfortable, and being candid and telling the truth to your friends. It would be a lot easier to remain quiet. And it's about being concerned for other people and going through difficulty with them and, and allowing yourself to be impacted by their feelings when it would be a lot easier to just keep them at an arm's length and not worry about that. So the, the point is, God didn't make us to glorify ourselves. So when we try to live that way, we're actually in direct violation of our design. And what that always leads to, it always leads to misery and breakdown. Which is why the most self-centered people you know are never also the most joyful people you know. This isn't just some like, uh, you have it your way, I have it my way. This is just the reality that we live in. Is when we live outside of our design, there is always breakdown. And by God's design, he uses the friendships like we've been talking about, to, the refining fire of that kind of friendship to actually forge us into people who really can love one another for his glory and for our joy. So to kind of bottom line all this, I know it's kind of a lot there, um, you will never be who God has made you to be outside of the friendships that he says that you need. Again, you and I, we will never be who God has made us to be outside of the types of friendships that he has called us to be a part of. <clears throat> but to this point, maybe you're thinking, Okay, you know, this sounds maybe a little bit like I want that, like some of, it, some of it's appealing, but like why would, how would this ever be possible on earth? Why would any person, much less an entire community of people, live this life of self-denial and of laying, themsel laying themselves down over and over again for other people? Like why would that like even actually exist? How could that even exist here? Maybe you've been hearing this and you're thinking, and much like I did when I was putting this together, like man, I am just not as friendly as I thought I was. You know, as, as you hear this, you might, you might have been thinking like, hey, that, I've never really had friends like that because I've never really been a friend like that. Um, I'm way more unfriendly than I expected. Um, the, <laughs> the reason I lead us into that is because there actually is hope for us. There actually is hope for people like you and like me. And that's going to be our last main idea today. Um, and that's going to be uh, the hope for the unfriendly. So Christianity, Christian community specifically, is unique for one reason, and that is that Jesus is at the center of it. And whenever Jesus was near the, end, near the end of his life, near the last um, just few hours of his life even, um, he was talking to his disciples, and in, in John 15, <clears throat> I want to read you what he said in John 15, verses 9 through 17. He said this, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, remain in his love. 
I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this. So listen to what he's about to say. He said there's no greater love than this. That someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. So this is who is at the center of Christianity. The true friend, you know, the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And what we see here is that we've given Jesus absolutely uh, no reason to intervene in our lives. We basically have just rejected him, ignored him, insulted him, abandoned him. But in response to that, what Jesus decided to do was to prove himself the truest friend, the perfect true friend, by showing his commitment to us, by choosing us when it does nothing but cost him, by speaking the truth to us, by telling us not only that we are more sinful than we dare imagine, but more loved than we could ever, ever imagine, and showing his concern for us. And then he doesn't just meet us where we are, but that he actually would pursue us to the point of laying his life down for us. So I'm going to call up the worship team, and we'll kind of close down here. <clears throat> but you will not find a more transformative community than one that has this Savior of love and grace and forgiveness at the center of it. This might be a newsflash to you, but Christians are not always the best friends. <laughs> Christians do a great job of not being the best friend sometimes, but we do have the best friend. And because of that, and because of Jesus laying his life down for us in this way and demonstrating the greatest possible love for us, because of that, I truly believe we have the resources to be true friends to one another. Because how can I abandon you when Jesus would pursue me to the point of dying on the cross for me? And how can I hold a grudge against you whenever Jesus has forgiven me a debt way bigger than any debt you could ever owe me? And why would I lie to you and flatter you, or why would I posture myself to be better than I am whenever Jesus has outed us both on the cross? If we were that good, he would not have had to die for us. And if my joy is really found in Jesus and really is made complete in him, then I have no reason to try to use you for my purposes and no reason to try to use you for my pleasure whenever I already have all the joy I need in Jesus. It's in the context of this community, of a community of people being transformed by Jesus, that we are given opportunity after opportunity to do the work that God has for us, to love one another for his glory and for our joy. And when we fail at that, not if we fail at that, but when we do, we have the opportunity to model the forgiveness and the grace that we've received, to model it for each other and to take an idea that can sometimes seem nebulous, that God forgives you, and actually bring it down to a human level and say, I forgive you. And actually be that to each other, be the hands and feet of Jesus to each other in a community that, that should be and I think can be unlike any other. Because I really do believe we could be a community like this here at Severn Covenant Church, but I don't think that because we're really smart or really cool or really, you know, we got things figured out or we have all the best church programs. The reason we can be that kind of community is one reason, and his name is Jesus. He is the hope that we have, the true friend, the friend of sinners 
who can take sinners like you and like me and make us into true friends also. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, it is a humbling thing to, to open your word and see the way in which you love us. And God, I just pray that it would change us, that it wouldn't just be head knowledge or just words on a page, but that your love for us would sink deep down into our hearts to the point that we would actually be able to extend that to each other, that we would be uh, just agents of grace and of mercy and of forgiveness and of love in this world, and that we would model that first and foremost in the community here in our church. God, help us to be true friends. Help us to not be afraid of committing. Help us to forgive when we're hurt. And God, I just pray that you would do that because we can't do it. We can't do it on our own, but we can with you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>